Hey everybody, just a quick note to let you know that we had some technical issues with our audio files in this episode. I've done my best to get rid of most of them, but you still might hear the occasional pop, crackle, or echo. Don't let that detract you from listening, though, because this is a really great episode. We want to hear your voices on EcoCast. We're going to be doing a special quick fictions episode featuring very short creative pieces of 300 words or less with environmental themes. Now, you may have heard of flash fiction, but our version is in collaboration with Professor Nicholas Royal from the University of Sussex in England. He has been running quick fictions events at Sussex for many years now, and he says the following about the idea. Quick fictions are the writing of our time. Quick means alive, vigorous, sharp, agile, perceptive, swift, even impatient, but also sensitive and vulnerable, like quick flesh. Quick fictions are funny, poignant, dark, sad, romantic, strange. They take us to the very quick of things. A quick fiction is not a narrative rushed out like a telegram, tweet or text message. It is a product of labour and love. A brief work composed, revised, sharpened and tightened in order to be enduring and memorable. Something to carry with you every day. And so we're looking for thoughtful, arresting pieces about ecological issues, climate breakdown or mass extinction. An eco-quick fiction might be quick cli-fi, quick nature writing, quick neo-pastoral, or it might be a prose poem that reflects on local or global environmental crises. So, if you're interested, submit your eco-quick fictions, up to 300 words in length but much shorter is also very welcome, to the link in the show notes by the 15th of May. Our favourites will feature in a special episode of EcoCast and later be published on the Quick Fictions website at quickfiction.co.uk. We're looking forward to receiving your submissions. Environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This This is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. So today's guest is Alexander Menrisky. Alex is a lecturer in English and Communication at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. He is the author of Wild Abandon, American Literature and the Identity Politics of Ecology, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. He earned his MA and PhD in English from the University of Kentucky and previously studied journalism and French at at Ohio University. An Ohio transplant from Appalachian, New York, his experience growing up as a queer mountain kid has been a driving force in his study of environmental cultures. At UMass, he is co-director of the Honors College Research Roundtable series, which connects undergraduates with interdisciplinary faculty research, and he also curates ASLI's Teaching Resources Database. Welcome, Alex, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you both for having me so much. I'm happy to be here. Good. Um, So inspired by the subtitle of Alex's book, American Literature and the Identity Politics of Ecology, today's root word is identity. 
Your identity is under, understood to be what makes you you, your personality, your individuality, or your values. In the phrase identity politics, the word is associated with the divisions and discord between different groups, the clashing of identities. But what is identity? The word comes from the classical Latin idem, meaning same, as in when we say that two things are identical, that they are the same. But when we talk about individual identity, it's about being the same as yourself. It's about being the same self that you were yesterday and the day before, and that you will be tomorrow. It's identity as stable, identifiable identity. But as we've known at least since Freud, and as has been corroborated by modern cognitive psychology and neuroscience, the self is actually a shifting dynamic thing. Interestingly, the Freudian concept of the id, the instinctive and unconscious part of the self, as opposed to the ego and the superego, this Latin id is the same root, the same id of idem and identity. This means that the sameness of the self, its identity, is psychologically and linguistically divided by these underground irrational forces, the id. There is always some foreign other, some id or it, at work in the self. Your ego, your sense of a stable, identifiable self, is only part of the picture. And this is important for questions of the environment for at least two reasons. First, modern biology, ecology and psychology teach us that organisms and ecosystems are not things, not stable identities, but processes, shifting dynamic interactions. And so one might wonder whether a notion of an identity as a stable, self-same thing has profound limitations for ecological thinking. And second, we know that there is a fatal mismatch, a fatal non-identity between what we know and what we do, between who we think we are and the effects our actions have on the planet. So Alex, that may have been a bit tangential to the ways in which you think about identity politics, but I hope it was interesting nonetheless. Um, to set the stage um, for your book, can you start by giving us, giving our listeners a two to three minute elevator pitch so that everyone can get a general idea of the scope of your book? Absolutely. And I don't think it was tangential at all. I think there's going to be a lot of overlap with what I'll have to say also. Uh, this book, uh, Wild, America, Wild Abandoned American Literature and the Identity Politics of Ecology, uh, I really set out to write it to account for the fact that modern American environmentalism really emerged in the 1960s and 70s around the same time that identity became a major socio-political sort of metric or, or, or a way of talking about the world, a way of talking about a variety of cultures in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and uh, so what I was really interested in thinking about was how did these uh, two things sort of influence each other? Or more specifically, how did uh, the emergence of identity as, as, a, as a, a major socio-political concept uh, influence the emergence of the environmental movement, the modern environmental movement. Um, really specifically, what I was interested in was uh, what Douglas Rossino calls uh, the politics of authenticity that sort of emerged in the 1960s, especially uh, among the American New Left, and, and uh, this sort of also uh, bled out into uh, the new social movements that followed and, and many identity-based movements that we're more familiar with, such as women's liberation, black power, red power, etc. Um, I was really interested in how, uh, if at all, the politics of identity that really was a motive force in a lot of other major social movements that emerged in the 60s also had an influence on environmentalism. 
And what I uh, really was interested in was how psychoanalytic concepts, uh, social theory by way of Frankfurt School thinkers really influenced the new left and how those psychoanalytic concepts in turn influenced uh, the way people thought about and wrote about environment. Um, so uh, o- overarchingly, kind of uh, the conclusion I reached was uh, that uh, there was a, a, a large trend in environmental writing of the time to kind of... Um, uh, try to square this politics of identity with also the newly mainstream science of ecology. How do you square the idea that there's such a thing as an authentic identity, an authentic self, a stable identity, with a science that is kind of fundamentally about exactly what you just talked about, about the fact that there that there's more of a relation, relationships rather than stable, unchanging things, including selves. Uh, and uh, what I've sort of uh, realized is that a lot of writers were using psychoanalytic concepts to suggest that uh, maybe the self is not authentic at all. Maybe what is more authentic is this idea of not having a self. And uh, they used psychoanalytic concepts to express this. Uh, but also at the same time, I, I want to suggest, and this is something you know, I, I hope and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about, um, the rhetorical effects of that sort of vocabulary, that psychoanalytic vocabulary, depending on how one used it, might have sort of uh, negative impacts on uh, marginalized communities uh, that many other new social movements of the same era were also organizing uh, to advance. So, so I, um, as, as both of you have been talking this morning, I'm, I'm literally just finishing up uh, um, this week, uh, in my interpersonal communications class, we've been talking about self and identity and perception and how all these different things are shaped. And so it's just, um, kind of very, very serendipitous that, that kind of all of this is coming through. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm struck with is it both in, in your, your root words today, Gemma, and, and some of the things that you're bringing up here, Alex, is this idea of, um, kind of static versus evolving. Right. And, and I think that is a common misconception that we are who we are. But really, if we think back to five years ago, we were very different people and we're probably going to be very different people in another five years from now or even a couple of weeks from now um, because our, our um, uh, you know, th- who, we, who we think of as ourself is constantly being shaped and changed by uh, what's around us. And so I'm wondering maybe if, if this uh, helps us think more about like identity politics as ecology or identity as, as kind of part of this ecological system. So I'm wondering if maybe you could kind of uh, build off of that idea a little bit and, and talk about more about how you're seeing this identity politics of ecology in some way. Right, absolutely. So what I want to kind of stress is that that term, identity politics of ecology, uh, I, I use it to refer to a very, very specific interpretation of, uh, of uh, the relationship between identity and environment. But I also want to mention that throughout the book, what I'm really interested in is how the relationship between these two concepts has always been a negotiation uh, on the part of a variety of writers, commentators, activists, etc. And that there are a lot of different ways folks have negotiated that relationship. Um, I would say that one of the biggest ways that people negotiate it is through the work of environmental justice, understanding how certain identity positions uh, tend to have different experiences of environment and specifically environmental and um, degradation, uh, the way it asymmetrically impacts people of color, especially Mm. queer folks. That's one of the ways in which the relationship between identity and environment has been negotiated. When I, when I say identity politics of ecology, I actually mean something much closer 
to what we've been talking about, this idea of a static identity. And, and again, I want to sort of make clear that um, I think largely this, uh, this, this, uh, this concept, identity politics of ecology, is a, is a rather negative thing, a rather negative interpretation of the relationship between identity and environment. And it's one that emerged in the 60s. Um, and has had a large influence on environmental writing since. Um, identity politics makes it sound like it's a movement. I don't mean it as a movement. I mean it as a sort of narrative about that relationship uh, that sort of got established in the 60s and was sort of told over time. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about how I understand that that narrative. And, you know, um, I was asked to perhaps prepare some quotes, and I have one that I'd love to read because I think it's a great illustration of what I'm talking about, okay? Um, mm -hmm. So as I said, th this identity politics of ecology, uh, it's really rooted specifically in psychoanalytic concepts that were circulating in social theory in the 60s and highly influential to the American New Left, other radical movements of the 60s, and that politics of authenticity I mentioned. Uh, one of the ways you kind of see it manifest in, uh, or one of the places you see it manifest in uh, popular environmental writing is in the work of Gary Snyder, the poet Gary Snyder. He has a line in his book, uh, The Practice of the Wild. He writes, uh, there is a problem with the human ego. Is it a mirror of the wild and of nature? I think not. For civilization itself is ego gone to seed and institutionalized in the form of the state. So I, I, I tend to go back to this example because it so clearly and obviously deploys psychoanalytic, a psychoanalytic idiom. Um, what, uh, what, I, what I really want to kind of uh, foreground is how uh, some environmentalists, specifically environmentalists affiliated with the new left in the 60s, were really trying to square their investment in personal authenticity, self-liberation. That was kind of a big... Uh, driving motive force behind uh, the new left in the 1960s, not just the liberation uh, from oppression, but a liberation from repression. The idea that uh, liberal institutions, uh, the Cold War consensus, uh, didn't just oppress its citizens, but also repressed their psyches. Um, they really got this uh, this this whole uh, argument. Uh, they, they found a lot of inspiration for this in the work of Sigmund Freud by way of thinkers like Herbert Marcuse, other Frankfurt School uh, thinkers. Um, and they were really, they tended to really be uh, attracted to this idea that Freud presented that the ego develops as a result of civilization, uh, as a result of interaction with others. It's, a, it's, it's almost a sort of defense mechanism. By contrast, in infancy, uh, you know, Freud had his own kind of uh, changing conception of the psyche over time. But at one point, he sort of referred to a sort of pre-ego state as infantile narcissism, this sort of inability to distinguish between self and the world around you. Uh, he's used the, he uses the phrase oceanic feeling to kind of de describe how that sort of sensation of continuity, consubstantiality with the world around you. Uh, might sort of persist. But, you know, as you grow and you interact with others in the field of civilization, your ego develops, you kind of partition yourself off from the world around you. Um, new left figures were really uh, taken with the idea that Marcuse especially advanced that uh, there's such a thing as surplus repression, that the ego had developed too much. And that uh, that was because civilization was more repressive than it needed to be, that you could kind of relax that repression and kind of liberate the psyche a little bit. So um, 
what I've noticed is that at the time, uh, environmentalists were really concerned with squaring this idea that you could liberate the self, that you could relax the repressions of your ego a little bit and kind of access a more authentic self that civilization repressed. They're really interested in squaring that with uh, the newly mainstream science of ecology. How could there be such a thing as an authentic self, but also uh a whole ecosystem that sort of undermines the concept of a self altogether. Mm -hmm. So um, what I want to suggest is that they sort of mapped <laughs> that sort of Freudian idea of the ego forming and civilization over existing ideas about the distinction between nature and culture. And of course, at this point, the distinction between those two things we, we tend to recognize as being not just porous, but more or less kind of non-existent, that nature and culture are so closely intertwined together. Many writers at the time, though, sort of kind of thought about this uh, civilization, Freud's civilization versus nature concept, you know, the ego formed by civilization versus the kind of narcissism of infancy, the continuity with the world around you. They started thinking about ecology in those terms also, that, that there's not just a spatial distinction between nature and culture, a kind of traditional preservationist idea of that distinction. Uh, but also a psychic one. So, uh, civilization doesn't just destroy nature. It also represses our kind of authentic consciousness, which is to say, not an ego, but this consubstantiality with the world around you, a sort of identification with the whole ecosystem. But my, my sort of argument is that um, oftentimes uh, these writers, in the process of kind of making this argument, ended up sort of fixing ecology, which is such an anti-essentialist concept, as an essentialist identity position itself. The idea that identification with the ecosystem as a whole, stripping the civilized ego away and accessing your truest, most authentic self would be not a self at all, but an identification with the ecosystem as a whole. It kind of fixed ecology as an essentialist identity position of its own. And as a result, uh, oftentimes, and oftentimes unintentionally, writers would suggest that all other kind of socially mediated identities, not just the self, but things, you know, identities along lines of race, gender, etc., were merely artificial by comparison, that they're somehow not real. They're in the sphere of civilization, society, not culture. They're part of those repressions. And as a result, it kind of uh, ended up being a way of, again, more often than not unintentionally, but still meaningfully uh, neglecting or obscuring, kind of pressing social concerns, including environmental ones, affecting people uh, along lines of things like race, gender, class, et cetera. Mm. What really struck me when you were talking there is that it kind of seems like on both poles, so both on the kind of uh, civilized ego as being like uh, very separate from nature, and then also on in terms of, you know, this kind of authentic uh, ego or the authentic self that is the same as nature, that is at one with nature, that both of them seem to be a denial of relation or a repress a repression of relation and um that line from donna haraway comes to mind um when she says that you know relationship is the smallest possible unit of analysis that like you know there there is always there is a relation at root that is kind of you know 
what is the foundation of, of, of everything. So like the very notion of identity, whether it is identity with nature or identity with a kind of stable self is kind of, you know, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms. It doesn't um, make sense. Um, I want to backtrack a little bit. Can you, can you talk about like what, what were the seeds of this project? What, what drew you to this research area? And yeah, how did, how did your ideas develop over time? Absolutely. Um, I, I'm going to actually kind of liken my uh, my experience to, to one that a friend was telling me about recently. Uh, I feel like I know a lot of fellow environmental humanists, uh, most of them most of them men, uh, who kind of came into it really being uh, into Edward Abbey before kind of realizing as time went on, uh, you know, we can appreciate Edward Abbey, but we must also be critical of, of his work and, and kind of uh, some of the more negative aspects of what he's done. I kind of had a similar experience growing up, uh, except Edward Abbey was not my sort of environmentalist Bible. I was really into into the wild, uh, Christopher McCandless, uh, in a really, really uncritical way as a teenager. Um, that kind of became more critical over time. Uh, and uh it just so happened early, early in graduate school, I took a seminar in uh, psychoanalytic theory. I was most, I was less interested in psychoanalytic theory as a practice, as as I was kind of, you know, thinking about how psychoanalytic concepts have organized the way people talk about other things. You know how it's sort of kind of saturated everyday speech, um, and I, I would, I would periodically reread into the wild because because that was my thing as as a teenager and um and it struck me upon rereading it around the same time that I was in this class how how closely many of the ways Chris McCandless talked about himself sort of mapped over um that sort of narrative that Freud was telling uh, in in civilization and its discontents this idea that moving from, you know, infancy into civilization was a movement away from consubstantiality with the world to kind of a limited ego. And it struck me that the narrative into the wild was almost that story kind of being told in reverse, right? Chris McCandless was almost trying to tell that story in reverse, that by kind of retreating into, into nature, you know, over there rather than civilization over here, he wasn't just kind of making a spatial movement. He was also uh, trying to uncover a repressed, authentic self that was kind of um, that was was specifically not a self. That it was that it was sort of kind of again consubstantial is that word I keep using. That his 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 consciousness, his identity, the way he thought of who he was, was not as a singular, stable person, but uh, as an entire ecosystem. So it was really in the process of rediscovering that work through the lens of thinking about the way psychoanalytic concepts have, have kind of saturated uh, many other areas of everyday life that I began thinking about, okay, so this was written in the 1990s, and it's really interesting to me that he's telling that sort of narrative. Uh, how does that start, right? Where does that narrative kind of uh, find its roots, uh, that idea that of reversing civilization and its discontents with an environmentalist flair? Where does that get started? Because I'm certain it didn't start here, right? How did he pick up that idea? And uh, I was kind of trying to think about that and, and piecing it together uh, over the course of, of my doctoral program that this book started as a dissertation, kind of thinking through all the texts I was reading, of piecing together a narrative from there. 
Um, and, you know, sure enough, when I go back to Into the Wild today, I can see John Krakauer making all these references to countercultural figures that McCandless was really interested in. He never names people, but there was such a reference almost more to the 1960s than there was to even kind of the figures Krakauer suggests McCandless was most inspired by, kind of more typical 19th century figures like Thoreau. Um, and uh, I found that really striking. I find that really striking now. I find it vindicating now uh, when I go back and reread it and see there are so many. He keeps gesturing back not to the 19th century as you'd expect for like a wilderness retreat novel, but he keeps gesturing to the 1960s. You mentioned Into the Wild. You mentioned you know that this this kind of built out of your dissertation. I'm curious to hear maybe some of the other uh, literary texts that you're thinking about. Uh, if you could you know give us an example or two and and just kind of talk us through how your your uh, approach here is is playing out in these different texts. Absolutely. Um, I do want to say that I think that um, I, I think it's a really important detail is that even though we should be critical of this narrative of accessing some repressed identity with the ecosystem because of the kind of rhetorical effects that story could have. Um, and that kind of, that figure, Chris McCandless really epitomizes that John Krakauer, the writer of into the wild, I, I will always argue is actually a lot more critical of his subject matter than people often give him credit for that. I don't think he's really lionizing the character, the figure he's writing about. He's actually trying to kind of pick this apart a little bit and be a little critical and that's kind of my uh, my goal throughout this book is to really trace how literary texts specifically have never really um, have never really endorsed an identity politics of ecology. They're more interested in kind of exploring the concepts behind it, dramatizing them, seeing them play out, and normally end on a pretty critical note. Um, I, I one of the things I write in the introduction is that sort the sort of kind of key motif for environmentalist identity politics is this idea of dissolution, a moment when a writer expresses their self kind of falling apart. Um, there are a lot of ways writers do this, um, and they th those different ways might have different effects, different rhetorical effects. Uh, some writers tend to take it really seriously, even though, of course, the act of writing about yourself falling apart requires a perspective from which to write about it. It's always kind of a paradoxical rhetorical act. Um, but Oftentimes, uh, people have kind of advanced that idea really, uh, really seriously, often in more kind of politically oriented writing rather than literary writing. Um, literary writers, uh, I, I argue in the book, take the concepts of authenticity and ecology as they were kind of interacting at the time they were writing and play with them a little bit, kind of play with them in a similar way that people who kind of take the identity politics of ecology seriously uh, they play with those ideas similarly with the, with the result that they end up really kind of critiquing this sort of fusion that, that the folks who really kind of take that, that, uh, the idea of an, uh, I call it ecological authenticity instead of like personal authenticity. People, uh, political writers would often take that idea really seriously, but literary writers more often than not are exploring relationships between authenticity and ecology. And normally their texts end up coming to the conclusion that, uh, the idea of authenticity is garbage, right? You know, that, that, that there is no such thing as a true, stable, fixed, essential self or race or gender or what have you and with more of an eye toward kind of that relational 
uh, sort of account of identity that we've been talking about. So most of the, the texts that I look at, some uh, strong examples are um, I, Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon is a great one because uh, Toni Morrison uh, was at the time, when you read her uh, uh, nonfiction at the time, her essays, she's, she was thinking about environment at the time, in- interestingly enough, but she was also really thinking about uh, politics of authenticity. Uh, she was writing at the time when uh, debates were really starting uh, uh, among black writers, uh, specifically when like, Alice Walker was really demonized uh, for uh, for um, uh, quote unquote kind of threatening the project of of black power, black liberation, because uh, she was kind of critically approaching some ideas of black authenticity. She was really being uh, kind of demonized for that uh, by some. And Toni Morrison uh, was uh, very much uh, supportive of Alice Walker and writing about similar things. She was really questioning, uh, of course, not the idea of, of, of black politics, right, racial politics, but the idea that there was such a thing as an authentic, essential black identity rather than a relation. So she was writing about environment and authenticity around the same time, and she was kind of playing with those ideas in that novel together in many ways. Um, Simon Ortiz, the Acomo Pueblo poet, uh, his work Woven Stone is also another great example. Um, He's kind of writing back against uh, uh, kind of a white settler uh, hobbyists. Uh, uh, Philip Deloria has this fabulous book, Playing Indian, where he writes about white settler hobbyists, especially in the 1960s and 70s, play acting uh, Native Americanness, indigeneity. And he's really writing back against that, especially tendencies to conflate uh, Native American subjectivity with that kind of stripped away, civilizationless uh, consubstantiality with environment that's very reductive uh, projection of authenticity onto Native American peoples. He's writing back against this by really foregrounding the fact that Native relations with environment uh, take shape through the stories that are told about them, not when those stories are stripped away, not when social forms are stripped away. Uh, so he's another uh, great text uh, that I look at. And uh, Margaret Atwood's Surfacing is another, Peter Matheson's um, The Snow Leopard. These are just a few examples. It doesn't surprise me when you say that, um, you know, these literary authors are actually kind of calling into question um, the notion of an authentic self or a stable identity because, um, I mean, and, and this is something that I've explored a lot in my own work, but, um, you know, it is the nature of literary writing that um, that language has this kind of equivocality to it um, that, you know, meaning isn't, isn't uh, what was the word you used, consubstantial with the text, but rather meaning emerges out of the text and it emerges in different ways for different people. And so, you know, if you are engaged in the practice of writing literary texts, that kind of um, non-identity that is inherent in language is going to be kind of, you know, part of what you're dealing with every day. So I, I think, and, and, you know, and obviously what we think of as, of the self is a very linguistic thing. We have a kind of narrative through which we we build our so-called identity. So there, I think there's a lot of crossover there with kind of, you know, writing a novel or writing yourself. Um, but yeah, I want to pick up, you use the word um, dissolution, um, and when I hear ego dissolution, for me that just brings up 
psychedelics um, and you do discuss a little bit in your book the psychedelic counterculture of the 1960s and yeah I wonder if you can just um, expand a little bit on 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 the use of psychedelics and how this kind of relates to your notions of ecology and identity um, and also perhaps then maybe link it as well to to the current resurgence in popularity of psychedelics and 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 uh, whether there has been any kind of change or moving on from the way things were in the 60s, or are we just kind of repeating those same frameworks? Sure, of course. Um, I, I think one thing I, I really want to kind of emphasize as a prelude to what I have to say about that, uh, what you said about identity and narrative, right? You know, one of the things that I write is that identity only takes shape in the stories that's told about it, that, that are told about it. Um, and uh, the suggestion I want to make is that um, when uh, it's when folks deny that fact that they tend to kind of at least unintentionally do violence to sort of marginalized peoples who have really, uh, you know, uh, who have shaped whole movements around being able to articulate an identity position and the way uh, the way it sort of fits into kind of broader systems of oppression and what have you. Um and that's kind of how I think about the use of psychedelics in the book um, and today also, right? Um, I mentioned also that um, this idea of dissolution, psychoanalytic concepts, the, you know, the idea of the ego forming through civilization, that really uh, the, the rhetorical effects of the stories you tell about those things uh, really depend on, on how you're doing it, on the story you're telling, right? And I think that uh, for a long time, uh, especially organic hallucinogens like ayahuasca, peyote, psilocybin mushrooms, they had associations with sort of environmental consciousness for a long time now, going far, much farther back than the 60s, especially. Um, and in the 60s, uh, they experienced a, 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 a surge in popularity um, associated with native peoples, especially who kind of uh, really cultivated the use of uh psilocybin, peyote, um, and especially ayahuasca, which isn't even, um, you know, a plant. It's, it's a mixture of several, of several plants um, that was itself a, a kind of uh, Native American uh, uh, ritual tradition. Um, but uh, there were many writers at the time in the 60s, 70s through the 80s. Um, the figure that I really focus on a lot is Terrence McKenna, um, really celebrating uh, Native American use of organic hallucinogens. But the way in which he and many other figures tended to talk about it wasn't just simply in terms of, okay, using psychedelics, you know, helps us appreciate the world around us, you know, gives us a sense of connectivity. He did specifically tend to write about it in terms of accessing something authentic, essential, original, repressed, uh, quote unquote, more real than the social world. Uh, he used the same, you know, explicit references to civilization and its discontents, right? Not as an accident, the idea that by using psychedelics, it was a way of stripping away the repressions imposed by civilization, including the ego, and reaccessing this essential, authentic identification with the ecosystem as a whole. He identified that identification with uh, the Native American peoples he, he venerated, but with the result of kind of really having a reductive view or way of talking about them, he tended to kind of conflate um, all native peoples, no matter the region or tribe, into kind of a single sort of vision of 
ego-free sort of uh, primitives. That's really kind of, there's no other word for it. He used that word all the time, right? You know, he was celebratory, you know, he celebrated it, but it was still kind of a way of thinking and talking about native peoples uh, that just uh, sort of ignored their own cultural traditions, including the fact that the use of hallucinogens is itself based on, you know, centuries worth of, 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 of tradition and practice, right. Um, and, 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 and cultural negotiation. Um, and, uh, and, and, and a way of, and, and, and the way of talking about them that way also sort of obscures the fact that, uh, these, uh, that native peoples do have distinct cultural traditions and that they have also, uh, of course, suffered disproportionately at the hands of settler colonialism, and, and, and including environmental racism, effects of environmental racism. So um, there's a difference, in other words, between uh, using psychedelics, understanding kind of, you know, and appreciating maybe the, the, that idea of, quote unquote, consciousness expansion. It's another thing entirely to think about them as returning you to an essential, unrepressed identity um, that you are also identifying with native peoples in a way that collapses distinctions among them and erases really, uh, obscures really important issues of settler colonialism and environmental racism. Um, as for today, for the kind of resurgence today, I do think that today, a lot of the, the, the new work being done with, uh, psychedelics, hallucinogens is really positively clinical. Uh, I think that there's a, a lot more of an emphasis on clinical applications, the ways organic hallucinogens might treat things like depression and addiction, especially. And I think that's a really positive change. However, I think more popular and recreational users, you, you can read articles about using psychedelics on, on Vice, on in Vogue magazine, in Cosmopolitan, all over the place. People are writing about using ayahuasca, you know, returning to nature. And what I see there is they're tending to recycle the same narratives, even using the same psychoanalytic terminology, that same reverse civilization and its discontents, suggesting this kind of return to an unrepressed essence and authenticity and unchanging kind of fixed identification with the ecosystem, that same vocabulary, that same narrative is being recycled. And oftentimes so is the same way of thinking about native peoples associated with the, uh, that, 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 I mean, that these writers at least are associating with psychedelic substances. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. I think. That's, do you have so? Do you have an idea? I mean, this is probably putting you on the spot a little bit, but but do you have an idea of a, a way that you know uh, white Euro Americans can engage in in psychedelic culture and and you know perhaps with a uh, ecological objective in mind, but without kind of these these pathological ways of of framing it. Right. I mean, I think that's really the thing, right? I mean, the vocabularies we use to describe the world around us and the things we do are important, right? And, and you know, part of that psychoanalytic vocabulary, it doesn't have to be this way, but part of that, the way that vocabulary has been deployed has often, more often than not been to kind of posit this essential, stable, uh, ecological authenticity rather than kind of thinking more complex, complexly about it. Um, I mentioned that I, I, I read Simon Ortiz uh, quite a bit in the book. Um, and one of the things that I, I really, really love about his work uh, and, and about other similar works is, 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 again, that emphasis he places on how um, 
his tribe's relation with environment is is born out of the stories, the oral tradition, uh, the, the stories and narratives told about it, uh, not when those stories are stripped away, not when social forms and, and cultural traditions, uh, uh, aspects of their society are stripped away, right? It's not about removing repressions, removing uh, social forms, removing narratives, removing stories, removing culture. Uh, that's not the, that's not the way of, uh, of having a relationship uh, with environment. Uh, it is the stories themselves uh, wherein the relationship inheres. Um, and I think really that that would be what I say is, is, is sort of the way to, to kind of move away from this really reductive way of thinking about psychedelics and native peoples is to understand that the use of psychedelics and kind of the the uh, the awareness, the consciousness, the perspective, what have you that they that they give us, that that is it's also a function of the stories we're telling about it, right? And I think that what would be important would be moving away from this idea that psychedelics work because they strip culture away, and towards this idea that psychedelics are part of a a, a kind of social negotiation of that relationship. Yeah, and that's I I think what you're pointing to is something that I, I was thinking back to something you you talked about earlier, uh, where you know you're you're talking about how a lot of people when they're reading some of these texts or or some of these narratives they're not they're not doing so critically that even though some of the authors might be thinking critically through some of these things that people are just kind of taking them at face value, uh, whether it's something like Into the Wild or uh, I, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking of the way that uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, right? Um, a lot of my students like look at that movie and they're like, I want to be that guy, right? They're missing what's actually happening there. And so what you're, I think what you're kind of pointing us towards here is that, that, um, the importance of that critical perspective of, of being able to, to understand the complexities of something and not to reduce them down to this just really simplistic uh, narrative that's been shared with us time and time and time again. I mean, what it really is to me is that it's the same. We, uh, at this point in the environmental humanities, we, we tend to knock that old uh, distinction that we often associate, especially with writers in the 19th century, a stable distinction between nature and culture, you know, something over there versus something right here. You know, I think The Trouble of Wilderness by, by William Cronin, right? Um, what I, I think it's the same thing. That's what people keep returning to uncritically, except instead of just being kind of a spatial distinction, there's also a psychic distinction that's been mapped over it, right? That it's not just about nature over there, uh, culture over here. It's also about um, the nature of me that's buried under all the repressions culture has heaped upon me, right? I mean, it's a more critical view would be to understand those repressions as just as much a part of your identity uh, as, you know, whatever whatever you had when you were born, right? You know, whatever that kind of, uh, you know, if, if, we t- if you were to take Freud seriously, the infantile narcissism, and, you know, um, I think uh, I think I think that's really what we keep getting back to that that uncritical distinction between nature and culture persists. It's just there's also an added kind of psychoanalytic element dimension to it that often goes unacknowledged these days. Alex, the book sounds really fascinating. Um, and yeah, I would encourage everyone to to check it out. Um, but we are coming to the end of our time. Um, so would you like to just tell us briefly, what, what are you working on now? What are you uh, moving towards? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, 
transitioning smoothly from from this book to another one um i'm 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 starting to work on a manuscript uh that i'm tentatively entitling everyday ecofascism uh and and for any listeners who who might not be familiar with the term ecofascism is is sort of environmentalism of an anti-immigrant uh anti-indigenous or otherwise generally white supremacist persuasion kind of the the grafting uh, of environmental concerns onto hyper-nationalist ones. Um, and uh, by everyday ecofascism, I'm really interested in the fact that uh, kind of e- ecofascist talking points, not only is ecofascism kind of on the, ri- on the rise again, you know, most people associate it with sort of blood and soil uh, uh, Nazism, right? That was a, ecofascism was a big part of uh, national socialism, uh, Hitler's national socialism. Uh, it's experiencing a resurgence here in the United States. Uh, it's really kind of bubbling in places like uh, Reddit and Twitter and, and 4chan. Uh, it's in, in there are kind of real. There's a there's a large and growing, unfortunately, community of self-identified eco-fascists in the United States uh, and, and in Europe and Australia as well. Um, but also, eco-fascist talking points are increasingly popping up. Uh, across the political spectrum, across a variety of media, especially as uh, awareness of climate crisis intensifies, um, and uh, and more and more, uh, again across the political spectrum, people are associating environmental protection with things like population control, uh, border protection. Kind of there, there's a there's a recirculation of eugenic ideas really taking place kind of in casual scenarios, right? And that's what I'm really interested in, this everyday aspect of it, right? How ecofascism manifests in the every in everyday speech, uh, rather than just in a right-wing context. Um, so I, this, uh, it's, it's, I'm in the really early stages of that, but I, but I am really kind of thinking about it. It's sort of growing out of this first project, Wild Abandon, which is obviously really concerned with ideas of environmental purity, right? The idea of an environmentally pure identity. Um, my argument in the book, Wild Abandon, is, is that environmentalist identity politics, they didn't emerge in reaction to kind of the identity movements we're more familiar with along lines of race and gender, for example, but alongside them, right? But since it's sort of a discourse that's really attached to the idea of purity, it kind of lends itself to right-wing pickup. And one of the ideas I'm working with is that basically American ecofascism is what happens uh, when environmentalist identity politics get taken up by people who uh, identify themselves with it with a true America, for example. Um, so that's that's where I'm looking. That's what I'm looking at uh, as I'm looking ahead. Okay, it sounds uh, super super fascinating. Uh, I would I would you know. In the, the the years to come, I'd love to have you back on and, and to talk about that one, just because uh, it sounds sounds you know uh, really really important. I think to to where where the state of things are in this country right now. So I think it'd be great to to have you back on to talk about that. I love that. Um, really frightening too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, maybe fascinating wasn't the right <laughs> right adjective there, but I th- I think it's fascinating that you know that you're looking at it, but certainly yes, yeah, some some terror to that as well. Things can be fascinating and terrifying. And terrifying, sure. right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, well, let's uh, let's shift to uh, ending on a roll. I've got a 12-sided die here. I'm going to toss it on the table, and whatever number comes up, we will ask you that question. So we've got... All right, we've got number eight. 
Uh, which environmental author, artist, or theorist would you recommend right now? So if you had to pick one person that you want all of our listeners to check out, who would that be? Okay. Uh, I have a, a kind of weird answer to this question. I'm going to answer it a little, a little differently. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend somebody who might not be uh, immediately identified with kind of environmental thinking and suggest that we read them as an environmental writer. Um, okay. I really, uh, I'm really, really enamored with the, the poet Ada Lamone, contemporary poet Ada Lamone. Um, she's a, a Kentucky based writer a uh, fabulous poet, wonderful person, um, uh, special place in my heart just because I've, I've lived in Kentucky for quite a while. But uh, I would argue that there are few poets writing today who uh, do such a good, compelling job of kind of uh, getting at what it means to live in a certain place environmentally uh, than she does. Ada Lamone, the works of Ada Lamone. That's what I'd like to recommend. Awesome. That we think about her as an environmental writer. Great. Great. Um, And how can people find out more about you? Do you have any social media or website you'd like to tell our listeners? I do. Uh, The best place uh, for social media would probably be Twitter. And I do have a website. Uh, They are, uh, my Twitter handle and the website are are exactly the same. It's just my first and last names. It's Alex Menriski. So at Alex Menriski and AlexMenriski.com. My last name is, sounds deceptively complicated. It's actually just two English words shoved together. It's Alex Menriski. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's not, it sounds complicated, but it's pretty easy to find. So yeah, at Alex Minrisky on Twitter or alexminrisky.com. Yeah. Awesome. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. So people can, can get easy access to that, uh, as well as a link to, to your, your, uh, new book. We'll right. put that in there. Oh so. yeah. And you know, I would be remiss if I didn't also add that, uh, there is a 20% discount at Cambridge university press for the book right now. Uh, the discount code is, let me see, I always forget what it is. Um, where are you? It's WIAB 2020. And that's good through the end of the year, I believe. But also I should mention that a paperback will be on its way soon. It's still only in hardcover. Okay. Great. So definitely check those out. Uh, if you have ideas for episodes, you can get a hold of us. You can email us at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at asley underscore ecocast. Uh, whether you have an idea for yourself or you want us to reach out to someone and get them on, uh, please do that. We love to hear from people, uh, whether it's comments, feedback, questions, anything like that as well. So uh, please reach out to us. And if you'd enjoyed the show and you'd like to help us reach a bigger audience, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And we are, of course, always open to your feedback. Um, So thanks for listening. Thank you, Alex, so much for a wonderful conversation. 